Hey, it's Sean. I'm a schnook. And I have a special Appendix episode of Autobiography of a Schnook. Appendix 1, 1, 9. Hello, everybody. This is a rather unusual episode of Autobiography of a Schnook in which, well, you're not really going to hear a lot of autobiography. I don't know how to describe this particular installment other than I'm going to spend considerable time talking about something that has fascinated me for over 30 years. I had two opportunities to present it before. The first time was when I was a sophomore in high school. The beginning of my second semester of English was focusing on speeches, and one of the speeches we had to give was a speech to inform or demonstrate, and we were given five minutes. Uh, I got a B on the particular speech, and the reason that I didn't get an A was that I got docked for going over. In fact, I went five minutes over, so Mrs. Tarrant had to penalize me, unfortunately. But she and my classmates did like my speech. They thought it was pretty fascinating what I had to talk about. And I had another opportunity to deliver a similar speech in a college class. I don't remember what class. I don't remember what year. But I did get, I think, 15 minutes. But 15 minutes wasn't nearly enough still. So it was still pretty abridged. But I have a podcast now. I can do whatever the heck I want. Now, the thing is, I recorded this episode in several segments. And during different times when I recorded it, I was under different degrees of influence of allergies. So you're going to hear me at different levels of stuffed upness, I should say. But hey, I'm going to stop preambling here. Let's just get right on into this episode, which I'm going to call Appendix 119. Not many people realize it. But September 17th is the 50th anniversary of a pretty significant event in Beatles history. No, it's not the anniversary of an album release, a Beatle marriage, a film premiere, or even the day the Beatles broke up. It's an anniversary of something that happened involving the Beatles, not in their home country of England, but in the United States, specifically Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. Tim Harper wrote a front-page article for the Drake Times Delphic, the school newspaper, and I will link that article in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. The title of the article, Is Beetle Paul McCartney Dead? The short article brought up some clues from the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Magical Mystery Tour, and so-called White Albums that might indicate that Paul, in the words of Harper, may indeed be insane, freaked out, even dead. Overall, I have to say the article is vague and poorly written. Some clues are there, but not a lot of detail as to where some could be found. And Harper repeatedly refers to McCartney's new wife, Linda, as Jane Eastman. So that's where it all started. At least, that's the earliest known documented incident of the famous Paul is dead myth. Over two and a half years earlier, there was a similar rumor that McCartney was killed in a car accident on January 7, 1967, while driving on the M1 motorway in England. Why that date in particular? Because the roads were reportedly very icy that day, making a car crash rumor very plausible. Even before that, in December 1965, 
McCartney wiped out on a moped when he was visiting his family in Liverpool, and he was left not only with a scar on his lip, but also a chipped tooth. In fact, in promotional films for the songs Rain and Paperback Writer, you can actually see his chipped front tooth. But around that time, there was a brief rumor that the accident actually killed McCartney, but that rumor didn't last very long. I learned about the infamous Paul is Dead rumor pretty early in my Beatles fandom, probably around 1987-1988. Actually, it was Trivial Pursuit, likely the Baby Boomer edition, that first introduced me to it. I think the question was, what question about the Beatles did fans start asking in October 1969? The answer was, is Paul dead? Well, why on earth were people asking that? He's still alive today. My brother said, oh, there was a weird rumor back then that he died. People thought you could learn about it by playing their records backwards or something. Earlier this year, I talked about Pat Paul, my eighth grade teacher. He even mentioned it once too. He said it was something about how one of their songs has someone whispering, big boys don't cry over and over. And when you play that backwards, it says Paul is dead. Well, not quite. The song that has someone whispering, big boys don't cry is... I'm Not In Love by 10CC. None of the rumored clues actually has the exact phrase Paul is dead, but eh, I'll get to the specific clues in a little bit. My curiosity peaked when I read a book from the library about the 60s. The book was called uh, 60s. It was written by John and Gordon Javna. One of the pages had a brief paragraph saying that someone figured out that part of Revolution 9, when played backwards, sounded like someone was saying, turn me on, dead man. And ever since that discovery, fans were finding clues in every album and picture the Beatles released since 1967 that supposedly proved that Paul McCartney had died in a car accident. And there it was, my first solid piece of evidence to research. I learned that Revolution 9 was on the White album, once again, referring to Trivial Pursuit, the board game called it, and I quote, the spaced-out version of Revolution. On my next several trips to the library, I looked for the White Album. I think it took at least a month before it finally showed up on the shelf, so I took it home and played it. I hadn't heard the album yet, so I was excited not just to learn more of this Paul is Dead thing, but also to listen to some Beatles stuff I hadn't heard yet. I'm guessing that the library's copy of the album was from after 1975. The Beatles record label, Apple Records, launched in 1968 and lasted until 1975, but the library copy of the album didn't have an Apple label on it. Instead, it had a capital label. It was the tomato soup colored label I mentioned in a previous chapter of this podcast. But naturally, I went straight to Revolution 9. I put disc 2 on the JC Penny stereo system with the turntable, AM, FM radio, and 8-track recorder that I inherited from my brother and put the stylus on Revolution 9. As I listened, I wondered what the hell I was hearing. Whatever it was, it certainly wasn't a spaced out version of Revolution as described in Trivial Pursuit. Maybe the record was pressed wrong? Wait, that voice keeps saying number nine. I remember another Trivial Pursuit question that asked about a Beatles song that had the phrase number nine repeated over and over, so yeah, I guess this is the one. So I put my finger on the label and forced the record to go in reverse manually. Uh, there wasn't a neutral mode on this turntable as with some other models, so I'm sure this wasn't good for the motor. But as I listened to the unsteady backward track, I heard loud and clear, Turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. I nearly shit myself. Wow. 
I needed to find out more. Once again, I relied on the library. I did find a few more clues in one Beatles book. I think it was Nicholas Schaffner's Beatles Forever, but I might be wrong about that. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, there was another clue in the spoken gibberish between I'm So Tired and Blackbird on the White Album. Ugh, I'll have to check out the library's record copy of the White Album again because I recorded it to cassette tape, but you can't play a cassette tape backwards. And there are clues in the picture booklet that comes with the Magical Mystery Tour album and a few more on the Abbey Road cover. So I went back and got the White Album, but the library's copy of Magical Mystery Tour didn't have the booklet. But I went home and tried the I'm So Tired clue. Supposedly, the message between I'm So Tired and Blackbird said, Paul is dead, man. Miss him, miss him, miss him, when you play it backwards. Sometimes people quote it as, Paul is a dead man. Miss him, miss him, miss him. Well, I was disappointed. The miss him part is loud and clear, but the part about Paul stretching it big time. I actually owned Abbey Road, but on cassette, which only had a tiny reproduction of the front cover, meaning that I wouldn't be able to check out the clues that are on the back cover. But Paul walking across the street barefoot, huh, I'll get to that later, and the Volkswagen Beetle with the license plate reading 28IF was visible, but that was it. At one point, I saw a documentary on the making of the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album on PBS, and someone in that documentary pointed out how the flowers on the cover, shaped like a guitar, seemed to be shaped from the letters P, A, U, and L, and a question mark, questioning Paul McCartney's existence. That was weird. I was 13 years old when I first started learning all of this, and as such, I didn't have a lot of money and couldn't just go out and buy the albums. Uh, not that I'm rich 31 years later, but anyway, uh, it took almost all of those 31 years between then and now for me to actually learn all the clues and the stories from a crazy rumor that was sweeping the United States in a fairly short time, and I really doubt that I still know all of the clues. I'd have to say that a vast majority of what I've learned comes from two books, Turn Me On Dead Man by Andrew, A-N-D-R-U, J. Reeve, and The Walrus Was Paul by R. Gary Patterson. They complement each other pretty nicely, actually. Turn Me On, Dead Man focuses primarily on the story of how the rumor spread, while The Walrus Was Paul enumerates most, if not all, of the alleged clues leading to the conclusion that McCartney indeed was no longer among the living. Okay, so Paul McCartney died, but how? As the story goes, in late 1966, the generally agreed upon date is November 9th, the Beatles were having a pretty difficult recording session, and Paul stormed out of the session in a huff. On his way home, he got into a fatal car accident with the top of his head sheared off. Some versions of the story say he was actually decapitated. Some say he was distracted, ogling a meter maid. The rest of the Beatles and their manager, Brian Epstein, intercepted the media and police reports to keep McCartney's death a secret. But if Paul was dead, then who was that guy who looked like him in all the pictures and videos since the accident? And who was performing on the records? The general agreement was that it was someone named William Campbell. Most tellings of the story say that Campbell was a Paul McCartney lookalike, but one story I heard was that he was the winner of a sound-alike contest and upon being hired to replace McCartney, was assigned plastic surgery so that he would permanently look like him. 
That would explain why he had a mustache on the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album cover and the gatefold pictures. The mustache would cover up any telltale plastic surgery scars, with the other Beatles also growing mustaches so as not to make Paul or William Campbell uh, look suspicious. That explains so much, said the cover-up sleuths, whom I'm going to call clusters. I think that's the general agreed-upon term with these uh, Paula's dead people. Clusters. C-L-U-E-S-T-E-R. Clooster. After all, McCartney had been engaged to actress Jane Asher, but where'd this Linda Eastman person suddenly come from? She's obviously Campbell's significant other. And what about the famous Hofner bass that Paul had been using since 1962? Why did he suddenly switch to a Rickenbacker bass, as seen in the All You Need Is Love recording session that was broadcast worldwide via satellite? Even his bass playing style suddenly changed. His playing is now much more melodic than ever. Well, because it's a different person playing bass, that's why. Well, actually, all of that can be explained. First of all, Paul McCartney and Jane Asher simply broke up. It happens. And he did have a girlfriend after Jane and before Linda. Francie Schwartz, I believe her name was. And the truth is, he had been using the Rickenbacker bass since the recording of the Rubber Soul album in 1965. It just so happened that when on tour, he only had the Hofner with him. And even then, people do switch instruments from time to time. Case in point, oh, his bandmate George Harrison, who went from using a Gretsch to a Rickenbacker 12-string and then back to the Gretsch. John Lennon sometimes used a Rickenbacker, and sometimes he used a Martin Acoustic. So is it really that strange that a bass player would try a different instrument? Also, there wasn't even a recording session on November 9th, 1966. The Beatles' last recording session for the Revolver album was June 21st, 1966, and they wouldn't be back in the studio again until November 24th. Nonetheless, though... How exactly did people come to the conclusion that McCartney was no longer among the living? Well, from clues planted on the albums the Beatles released since the tragedy, of course. Seems strange that they would go through the trouble of covering it up, but then leaking clues slowly. Doesn't that kind of uh, defeat the purpose? So, what exactly were these clues? The first inkling happened on October 12, 1969. Russ Gibb was on the air at WKNR in Dearborn, Michigan that night. He received a call from a young, unidentified listener who asked Gibb if he heard anything about Paul McCartney being dead. Intrigued, Gibb asked the kid for details. He learned that Revolution 9, when played backwards, produces a message saying, Turn me on, dead man. According to Gibb, no imagination at all was required to hear the message. It was clear as day. And personally, I agree. Furthermore, Russ Gibb learned that John Lennon can be heard allegedly saying, I buried Paul at the end of the song Strawberry Fields Forever. According to some tellings of the story, it's clearer if you listen to the song not on the 45 RPM single, but on the Magical Mystery Tour album, but speed it up to 45 RPM. If you ask me, it does sound a lot like I buried Paul if you speed it up to 45, but the official word is that Lennon actually said cranberry sauce. Two days later in nearby Ann Arbor, the University of Michigan student newspaper Michigan Daily ran an article on page two entitled McCartney Dead, New Evidence Brought to Light, and I will link that article in the online bibliography. 
The article was written by a student named Fred Labour, and it begins with an editor's note saying, and I quote, Mr. Labour was originally assigned to review Abbey Road, the Beatles' latest album, for the Daily. While extensively researching Abbey Road's background, however, he chanced upon a startling string of coincidences which put him on the trail of something much more significant. He wishes to thank WKNR-FM, Louise Harrison Caldwell, and George Martin's illegitimate daughter Marion for their help. Mr. Labour says it's all true. Now, just to clarify things here, Louise Harrison Caldwell is George Harrison's older sister, who has lived outside of St. Louis for decades. In fact, George Harrison's first trip to the United States was not the famous trip of February 1964 that launched the famous British invasion, but the previous year when he flew out to Illinois to visit Louise. I think it was well known in the 60s that George had a sister in Illinois, but I'm pretty sure the shout-out in Labour's article was a joke. What about the mention of Beatles producer George Martin's bastard daughter, Marion? Honestly, I don't know. I tried to find information about it. I do know that Sir George had an affair with his second wife while still married to his first wife, but I never heard of him fathering any children outside either of his marriages. But getting back to Fred Labour's article, the first actual line of the article reads, and again I quote, Paul McCartney was killed in an automobile accident in early November 1966 after leaving EMI recording studios tired, sad, and dejected. Furthermore, the article said that the Beatles were in the midst of recording an album called Smile, and that the session had broken down into unproductive bickering, prompting the Southpaw Beatle to leave and speed away in his Aston Martin. He was found four hours later among wreckage from a car accident, pinned over a culvert. Ugh. I had to look that up, I confess, and the top of his head was sheared off. Now, just this part of the story should have tipped people off that it's all a joke. Smile, of course, was the album the Beach Boys were actually recording in November of 1966. But Labour does attempt to cover up this strange detail later by saying that after McCartney's death, the rest of the Beatles changed gears and recorded Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and then handed the Smile Project off to Beach Boy Brian Wilson because the Beatles, especially Paul, were in awe of Brian Wilson and highly enjoyed Good Vibrations, which was released just a couple of weeks before the alleged Aston Martin accident. Furthermore, Labour claimed that after Wilson canceled the Smile album, the album that did eventually come out instead, Smiley Smile, was a tribute to Paul McCartney. Back in the USSR, a song with clearly Beach Boys-inspired background vocals and lyrics was allegedly recorded as a thank you to Wilson for taking Smile off the Beatles' hands and for keeping his trap shut about the cover-up. Labour asserted that the Beatles had already been discussing what would happen to the group if one of them should ever meet an unfortunate demise, arguing that the group was able, once before, to substitute one member when Ringo Starr was in the hospital for a tonsillectomy. Further, he implied that planting clues in albums was the Beatles' attempt at dark humor, citing John Lennon once allegedly saying, Paul always loved a good joke. Said planting of clues allegedly was the result of a collaboration between John Lennon and George Martin after Lennon went into a meditative seclusion for three days. During those three days, George Harrison was said to have buried Paul McCartney's body while Ringo conducted services. Never mind that most people's families arrange funerals and burials, of course. Now, this is where William Campbell comes in. 
According to Labor, Cavill was an orphan from Edinburgh, Scotland, and he won a Paul McCartney lookalike contest sponsored by the Beatles, specifically held to find a suitable replacement for their late bandmate. Here is also where the first planted clue comes in. A picture of Campbell from before the lookalike contest is supposedly included in the lower left corner of the picture collage included with the Beatles' 1968 self-titled album, also known as the White Album. That picture is also included in the article. If you have a copy of the White Album and want to know specifically which picture it is, look for the picture of a guy in glasses and with a thin mustache. Or you could just look at the article I linked in the online bibliography. But uh, Fred Labour writes, and I quote, minor plastic surgery was required to complete the image. Labour added that the new Paul grew a mustache in an attempt to distract people from noticing any facial distinctions between him and the real Paul, while the other Beatles also grew mustaches to help assimilate him into the band. On top of all that, Campbell was also able to mimic McCartney's voice, such that voice prints of the old versus new Paul McCartney showed only slight differences. He was apparently so good that he abandoned his own speech habits and adopted Paul McCartney's permanently. Fred Labor's article goes on to describe how the Sgt. Pepper's album was concocted again by the conspiracy duo of John Lennon and George Martin, with the dual purpose of being artistically and monetarily successful and dropping clues that would slowly let fans in on the secret that their beloved Paul had met his maker. The article gives us more clues. For one thing, the whole concept of the album being music by this new band called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. A different name, but it's, as the song goes, an act you've known for all these years. Hmm. Lennon and Martin decided that the album cover photo would include an open grave, Inside that grave is a flower arrangement shaped like McCartney's trademark Hofner bass. Open up the album's gatefold cover and you'll notice that McCartney, or Campbell, is wearing a patch that says OPD, an abbreviation for officially pronounced dead, supposedly England's equivalent to the United States abbreviation DOA, or dead on arrival. Also, the supposedly fake McCartney is shown wearing a medal given by the British Army to commemorate a heroic death. I will get back to both of those clues later. The next clue that Labor gives us is that Paul's back is turned on the back cover, the implication being that they want Paul to be singled out to draw attention to something particular. Or perhaps the implication is that it's not even McCartney, it could be anybody there standing in for the dead Paul. Next, Labor goes into audio clues about McCartney's accident. He singles out the song A Day in the Life, but only specifically the line they'd seen his face before, and a few lyrics around that line. He interpreted it as, the face looked familiar to those who witnessed the accident, but because the top of his head was cut off in the accident, his facial features were obscured enough for people to not be able to pinpoint exactly where they'd seen that face. Now, Fred Labour brings up an interesting point I don't remember seeing mentioned in any other discussion of McCartney's deadly car accident. He argued that to fill out an album that would have songs by the actual Paul McCartney, one of the Beatles' primary songwriters, George Martin stepped in to compose new music. Labour reminds fans that even though George Martin has never written music for the Beatles, he was actually a classically trained composer. That is very true, by the way. Labour did not make that up. According to the article, 
The Telltale song on the Sgt. Pepper's album is When I'm 64, an old-fashioned music hall song that would seemingly fit the tastes more of the elder George Martin than those of a group of rockers in their mid-twenties. Labor correctly asserts that this style of songs credited to and sung by McCartney habitually continued right up through Maxwell's Silver Hammer on the Abbey Road album. Although he didn't, he also could have pointed out a similar style in Your Mother Should Know, Martha, My Dear, and Honey Pie, not to mention songs that Paul either wrote or produced for other artists, including I'm the Urban Spaceman, Cat Call, and Those Were the Days. Wait a minute, I said not to mention, yet I mentioned them. Oh, oh well. Semantics. In a rather fitting transition, Labour correctly stated that during the sessions for the album, the Beatles recorded John Lennon's song, Strawberry Fields Forever. And in fact, it was the first song recorded for the Sgt. Pepper's album, but due to demand, it was released as a single and ergo left off the album. However, it was included on the next Beatles album released in the United States, Magical Mystery Tour. And a little bit of background here, Magical Mystery Tour was not released as an album in England. Instead, UK fans got a double EP, two 7-inch records with three songs each that contained songs from the Beatles' hour-long TV program of the same name. In the United States, Capitol Records took the songs from the Magical Mystery Tour show, put them on an album, and then padded out the album with singles that were released in 1967. England never got the entire album until 1976. Of course, Fred Labour pointed out the voice supposedly saying, I buried Paul, and he suggested playing the album at 45 RPM to hear the message clearly. Labour argued that the Magical Mystery Tour album would be ideal to use for dropping clues of McCartney's death because John Lennon had been reading up on death and how various cultures deal with it, citing Hunter Davies' 1968 Beatles biography as his source on that particular bit of information. Magical Mystery Tour, both the album in the U.S. and the EP in the U.K., came with a 24-page picture book consisting almost entirely of stills from the Magical Mystery Tour TV film. Labor talks about how there are several instances of a hand appearing behind Paul McCartney's head in the picture book, claiming that a hand behind the head is, and I quote, a symbol to mystics of death. Interestingly, though, on that note, he fails to mention Issy Bond's hand appearing behind McCartney's head in the Sgt. Pepper's cover. How do you miss that? Oh, well. Labour also points out how in one of the pictures in the book, William Campbell as McCartney sits behind a sign that says, I, you, was, indicating there was an identity change at some point. Other cloosters pointed out that the word you is in very small letters, so it almost looks like the sign just says, I was, implying that the person behind the sign was, and ergo, no longer is. Fred Labour writes that a picture showing police officers and surgeon is another clue, Sure, the police would respond to a car accident, and surgeons would have worked to save McCartney's life. Next, Labour introduces black as a sign of Paul's death, which is understandable. After all, black is classically associated with mourning. He points out a couple of pictures in which McCartney is wearing black trousers and no shoes, and asserts that dead men are buried in black pants and without shoes. In one of the pictures, you can see where Paul's shoes are. They're over by Ringo's drum. Old Fred has that covered too. 
He says that empty shoes are, and I quote, a Grecian symbol of death. The other black indicator that Fred Labour mentions is that in a picture taken from the very end of the film, the Beatles are wearing red roses on their lapels, except for Paul McCartney, who is wearing a black carnation. Again, Paul is being singled out by wearing a different color, and that color happens to be a common mourning color. That's it for the picture book. The article then moves on to the actual songs. Labor attempts to tie the overall theme of the song, Magical Mystery Tour, to Lennon's obsession with the cover-up. The line, dying to take you away, is cited specifically. Next on the album is The Fool in the Hill, which tells us about a man with a foolish grin who's keeping perfectly still. Why is he perfectly still? Because he's dead! And he's grinning a dead man's foolish grin, whatever that's supposed to mean. Then there's George Harrison's contribution to the film Blue Jay Way, a song inspired by George spending time in Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles and waiting for some friends to arrive. Friends who got lost while dealing with thick fog. Or is the song about that? According to Fred Labour, it's actually a song filled with Eastern religious themes in which George implores Paul to resurrect himself and don't be long. One song that gets a lot of attention in the whole Paul is dead brouhaha is I Am the Walrus, which is not surprising at all given how strange the lyrics are. The official inspiration for the song is that one day when Lennon and his childhood best friend Pete Shotton were chilling, John was reading some fan mail and he got a letter from a fan who was attending a school that John used to attend. According to the fan in the fan letter, one of the teachers at the school regularly gave an assignment for students to interpret a Lennon-McCartney song. Well, thing is, John Lennon always insisted that his songs and, well, everybody else's songs in the group were pretty straightforward and didn't need any interpretation. But after reading that fan letter, he started writing some weird lyrics and he told Pete Shotton, let him try to figure this out. So he wrote, uh, sometimes under the influence of LSD, some pretty intentionally weird lyrics, including some words that he literally made up. Anybody know what a expert is? Of course, Labour does not disappoint. His article gives the song some attention. The first thing he says about I Am the Walrus is, and I quote, Walrus is Greek for corpse. At this point, it seems odd that it would be John Lennon calling himself a corpse and that they didn't have William Campbell sing this under the Paul McCartney guise. Now, we'll get to this anomaly later, but another clue from I Am the Walrus that Labor proffers is that at the end of the song, there's a passage from Shakespeare's play King Lear that mentions, as he says, death and villains. Well, he's correct there. When the song was mixed, a radio was piped into the recording and was randomly tuned as the song was being mixed. And at one point, it actually tunes to an audio production of King Lear. In fact, let's listen to that actual King Lear performance and without the Beatles music getting in the way. Slave! Thou hast slain me. Villain, take my purse. If ever thou wilt thrive, bury my body. And... Give the letters which thou find'st about me to Edmund, Earl of Gloucester. Seek him out upon the British party. Oh, untimely death. death. 
I know thee well. A serviceable villain, as duteous to the vices of thy mistress as badness would desire. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rest you. Now, Labour says that this radio performance of King Lear is blended with an unaired radio announcement about Paul McCartney's death. I'm going to admit I've never heard of this alleged clue until I started researching for this episode. Interestingly, all of Side 2 of Magical Mystery Tour, except the previous mention of Strawberry Fields Forever, is ignored in the article, except for the closing track, All You Need Is Love. That song was specifically recorded for a TV show called Our World, which was a groundbreaking live program that featured satellite feeds from all over the world. The Beatles were featured on the segment focusing on England, and for the occasion, the group was filmed with a bunch of friends joining in, overdubbing vocals in a second layer of instruments onto the backing track of the song. Whether the song was specifically written for the occasion is lost to history. Nonetheless, Fred Labour wasted no time in interpreting the song as Lennon's expression of a religion he was starting to get into. Labour pointed out that there's, and I quote, a tribute to Paul's early composing efforts at its conclusion. Now, Fred might be referring to a brief moment when you hear someone singing the refrain of She Loves You during the fade-out. And it's also common knowledge among Beatles fans that the string section can be heard playing Green Sleeves, or as some people know it, What Child Is This, during that same part of the song. Well, Fred Labour asserts that it's Paul's favorite old standard, as he says, implying that it's another tribute to the remaining Beatles' apparently departed friend. Starting notably with the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, the Beatles took to including extra goodies with the albums. The Sgt. Pepper's album included not just an inner sleeve with a red pattern designed by an art group called The Fool, a nice change from the typical plain white inner sleeve or an inner sleeve chock full of advertising from the record label, but also a cardboard sheet of colorful pictures that could be cut out. I already talked about the 24-page picture book that came with Magical Mystery Tour, and yes, I know the Beatles didn't authorize the Magical Mystery Tour album that came out in the States, but the same picture book came with the EP of the same name in England. The pattern of giving fans extra stuff continued in 1968 with the band's next long player, the self-titled album again known colloquially as the White Album. Inside the album, fans would find a picture of each individual Beatle, suitable for framing or pinning up. Also, there was a poster that included a slightly streamlined transcription of the album's lyrics, and on the reverse side of the poster was a large photo collage. Remember, Labour's story was that the top of Paul's head was sliced off in the car wreck. He points out that in McCartney's individual photograph, the top of his head is not visible, which is true the way the photo is cropped, you can't see the top of his noggin. Labour also points out that in the photo collage, there's a picture of Paul lying on his back in such a way that the top of his head is not visible. This also is true. He appears to be lying in a sudsy bathtub, and the angle of both his head and the camera don't allow the top of his head to be seen. Despite the album being a two-record set jammed with 30 tracks, Labour doesn't really give the music that much attention. Aside from the allegation that Back in the USSR was a thank you to Beach Boy Brian Wilson, and of course the Turn Me On Dead Man message in Revolution 9, Fred Labour only discusses the song Dear Prudence as offering a clue to the cover-up, claiming that before the Beatles were famous, Lennon gave McCartney the nickname Prudence, and the line Open Up Your Eyes is a plea for Paul to resurrect himself, 
again mentioning the religions that Lennon was allegedly getting into. Labor then finally gets to Abbey Road, the album he was assigned to review. For whatever reason, he had to mention that monks live in abbeys. I guess it was to tie back to Lennon's interest in Eastern religions, which of course wouldn't make sense because abbeys are usually specifically for Christian religions, but whatever. It appears that this article is also where we first get the characterizations of each beetle as he appears on the album's cover. John Lennon is in white and ergo represents God. Ringo is in black, so he's the Undertaker. Paul is the resurrected corpse, of course, and George Harrison, dressed in denim, was the gravedigger. Labor points out that Paul has bare feet, referring back to his previous assertion that the dead are buried without shoes and that he's holding a cigarette in his right hand, despite the actual Paul McCartney being a lefty. Labor's explanation is that the cover is trying to illustrate a story of Paul being resurrected and after conquering death was given a cigarette and was being led out of the tomb. Fred Labour states that Paul is actually really dead, of course, and that the picture is just a fantasy of symbolic resurrection. Next, Labour talks about the songs that allegedly give us clues to the cover-up. Maxwell's Silver Hammer, a song about a med school student murdering people by smashing their heads with a hammer, is, in Labour's mind, a representation of religious justice. Personally, I think he could have made a stronger point by pointing out how in the Catholic Church, after a pope is believed to have died, he is traditionally struck on the head with a silver hammer after somebody calls him by his birth name three times. Abbey Road has the song Octopus's Garden, the second song in the Beatles catalog credited entirely to Ringo Starr, and apparently that song is also a clue to the cover-up. According to Fred Labour, Octopus's Garden is a slang term used in the British Navy, referring to where naval heroes are buried. Given that the Beatles came from a major port city, it's not unreasonable to think that the Beatles may have been familiar with some naval terms. Side One's closing track, titled I Want You, She's So Heavy, is John Lennon trying to pull Paul up out of the ground, so says Labour. And the song's famous abrupt ending represents how the pulling suddenly stopped once Paul was back up on the surface, again referencing this alleged symbolic resurrection. For side two, Fred Labour doesn't go into detail about clues to Paul's alleged death and symbolic resurrection, but instead he points out several examples showing principles of a religion the Beatles were supposedly trying to start, culminating with the closing lines from the song The End, which Fred asserts are delivered from Paul while sitting at John's right hand. Uh, remember, John's supposed to represent God on Abbey Road. Remember, John is supposed to represent God on the Abbey Road album cover. And that's pretty much the end of the article. It's interesting that Fred was assigned to review the Abbey Road album, but seems to address it only as an afterthought. Again, I'm linking the article in the online bibliography. It's been preserved digitally for everybody to see. But I do have a few things to say in response to that article. It's pretty amazing how widespread the assertions in this article became. There are people who, to this day, believe that Paul McCartney has indeed been dead since 1966 and was replaced by an imposter. But there's one thing that these people missed then and are missing today. That's a joke, son! Yes, a joke. For one thing, the story of how the Beach Boys' legendary unfinished album Smile was originally a Paul McCartney-led Beatles project 
should have been a huge, huge giveaway. It's pretty well known that Brian Wilson originated Smile, and the sessions for that legendary unfinished album began in September 1966, long before Paul McCartney's alleged accident. There had been magazine articles about Smile at that time. For those of you not in the know, the short version of the extremely complicated story is that Wilson worked on Smile for months, but due to a ton of circumstances, some probably real, some probably apocryphal, he canceled the Smile album, then went into his newly built home studio with the other Beach Boys and quickly recorded kind of a simplified, drastically underproduced remake and released it as Smiley Smile in the summer of 1967 and for decades didn't want to so much as acknowledge the existence of Smile until he was encouraged to revisit it and finish it in 2004. What is true about the whole Paul is Dead thing about the Beach Boys influence is the song Back in the USSR. Listen to that song, and you cannot deny there's a strong Beach Boys influence, what with the high wailing background vocals and lyrics that seem to be styled after the verses of California Girls. Boy Mike Love also claims that he was the reason McCartney wrote back in the USSR, saying that when he, Donovan, the Beatles, and a bunch of other people were in India studying transcendental meditation, he suggested to McCartney that the Beatles do a Beach Boy-style song. Now, remember, Fred Labour claimed that McCartney's fatal car crash was in early November 1966. Thing is, the Beatles were not in the studio in early November. I talked about that already. John Lennon was in Spain, where he was portraying Gripweed in Dick Lester's film How I Won the War, and he brought Ringo Starr with him. George Harrison was taking sitar lessons with Ravi Shankar. Paul McCartney was busy working on the score for the movie The Family Way, so there were no recording sessions for him to storm out of in the first place. The Beatles were away from the studio for a while, not returning until November 29, 1966, to work on John Lennon's latest composition, Strawberry Fields Forever. As for Gene Asher disappearing from the Beatles' world, Fred Labour flat out says that Paul was a homosexual. How do we know that? Well, because according to Fred, you can clearly hear a voice say, Paul's a queer, during the middle eight of the song Yellow Submarine, followed by someone saying, aye aye, Captain. The implication is that Gene Asher was merely, well, Paul's beard, so there wouldn't have been the tragedy of someone losing her actual boyfriend. And because Paul rarely kept in touch with his brother and his father, there was little to no worry about his family spilling the beans anyway. Um, except that he did regularly keep in touch with his father Jim and his brother Michael. The alleged Paul's a queer bit, that's a, well, you know what, here, let's listen to that part for a moment. See, the Paul's a queer thing, that's a bit of a stretch, and would certainly have a strange cadence in how it's said. I have no idea where Fred was hearing I.I. Captain. I didn't hear it in that clip you just heard. And even if the phrase I.I. Captain was there, I.I. is a response given after a superior issues a command, not a statement. Oh, and uh, speaking of beards, <laughs> the facial hair on the cover of the Sgt. Pepper's album apparently has a legitimate explanation. 
One story is that Paul McCartney grew a mustache to cover up the scar on his lip from the moped accident. And the other Beatles followed suit so that he wouldn't be the only one with a mustache on the album cover, so he wouldn't stick out like a sore thumb like that. I don't know if I believe that story, though, because he went through all of 1966 in plain view of the public without a mustache. Why would he suddenly become self-conscious about a barely noticeable scar? The other story is that George Harrison grew a mustache to disguise himself when he was in India while visiting Ravi Shankar, and the other Beatles decided also to grow mustaches as part of a trend. Whatever the case, people grow facial hair sometimes. It just happens. It's nothing unusual. As for the assertion that the word walrus is Greek for corpse, well, when I first heard this one, I went right to a knowledgeable source, my across-the-street neighbor who was very Greek and he spoke the language fluently. I asked him one day what the Greek word for corpse is. He said, actually, we don't have a word for corpse. If you take what we say and translate it literally, it would actually be dead body. He pronounced that Greek translation for me, but danged if I could make it out. But it definitely was not anything remotely resembling walrus. And just for fun, I typed corpse into Google Translate and had it give me a Greek word. And the word it gave me was ptoma, P-T-O with an acute accent over it, M-A. I then put that word back into Google Translate and had it convert the word to English. And lo and behold, it came back as corpse. So whether you go with my late neighbor's explanation or Google Translate, any way you slice it, the Greek way of saying corpse just is not walrus, plain and simple. Hmm, you would have thought that someone would have come forward and said that back then, no? Now about how you can't see the top of Paul's head in those pictures that came with the White Album, well, yes, that's true, that's true. But... Fred Labour conveniently fails to point out that in the four individual shots, only Ringo has his full head visible. The tops of both John's and George's heads aren't visible in their pictures. Does that mean that John and George were in the car with Paul and they're dead too? How about Fred's story about how George Martin was likely the author of When I'm 64? Well, the truth is that is a believable story, and I applaud Labour for making the connection to the old-timey feel of the song to a potential style of music that George Martin would have enjoyed. That is, it'd be a good story if it were true. Sadly, or happily, depending on how you look at it, it's not true. Paul McCartney himself indeed did write When I'm 64, and he actually began writing the song probably around 1960. He wrote it on the McCartney family piano with the encouragement of his father Jim, who was born in 1902. Now, you'll know the significance of that year in a sec. Jim McCartney himself was a musician and was in fact a band leader. He had a dance hall band. Paul finished writing When I'm 64, and the Beatles recorded it in early December 1966. Hmm, When I'm 64, and it's now 1966. Subtract 64 from 1966, you get, ha 1902, the year Jim McCartney was born. Jim McCartney had turned 64 years old a few months earlier. And given that the elder McCartney had given his son encouragement when he started writing the tune, he decided to make the song a tribute to his father. The arrangement was done in the style of the dance hall music Jim McCartney's band would perform. It was kind of hokey, but to this day, Paul McCartney cannot resist cheesiness and he's proud to admit it. In addition to When I'm 64, McCartney would use the influence of Jim Mack's band, as it was called, not only on those other Beatles songs I mentioned earlier, but also on the Wings song, You Gave Me the Answer. You gave me the 
Having said that, George Martin did have some involvement in When I'm 64 besides his usual production duties. He scored the music for the clarinet trio that performed on the song. And this whole thing about John Lennon's alleged interest in Eastern religions, I don't think he was ever interested in any religion in particular. He was arguably more spiritual than religious and was, along with many other people at the time, looking for some kind of way to find inner peace. George Harrison, however, there's no question about his interest in Eastern religions. Ever since 1965, he looked toward the East for his religious and spiritual satisfaction, and he'd regularly take part in Hare Krishna and Hindu practices for literally the rest of his life. Fred Labour took the Beatles' experimentations with transcendental meditations and just went with it. He used it to form this whole story of practicing and perhaps even founding a religion. But Fred Labour's discussions of religion just prove the adage, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. How about the explanations of the accessories Paul McCartney wore on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band? Like that patch that says OPD, an abbreviation for officially pronounced dead. How do we know that OPD is England's version of the United States DOA? Well, we only know that because, well, Fred Labour told us that, without citing any sources. And why would there be a patch with an elaborate coat of arms stuck to a dead body? The truth is, the patch did not say OPD, but OPP. Yeah, I know, shut up. OPP stands for Ontario Provincial Police. But why would a British guy be wearing a Canadian police patch? Well, there's actually a simple explanation for that. When the Beatles landed at Malton Airport, now called Lester B. Pearson International Airport, located in Toronto, that is Toronto, Ontario, on September 28, 1964, a corporal from the Ontario Provincial Police gave him that patch as a souvenir. And the medal he's wearing that's supposedly a British military symbol of heroic death? First of all, leaving a recording studio in a huff and crashing your Aston Martin is hardly heroic. And second of all, George Harrison is also wearing the same medal on the cover. Does that mean that he was dead then too, hmm? And third of all, on October 26, 1965, much to the chagrin of many British subjects, the Beatles were awarded with MBEs, that is, Member of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, an honor usually reserved to war veterans. Quite understandably, many were cheesed off that these scruffy Liverpool musicians were given MBEs despite never even serving any time in the military. Guess what? Those medals that McCartney and Harrison were wearing on the Sgt. Pepper's cover were their MBE medals. We have to admit one thing, though. Fred did give us a good story. He obviously got enough people's attention to really ramp up the circulating rumors of McCartney's death. Interestingly, in most of his allegations, he didn't cite a single source, yet people were fascinated enough with it that they took what he gave them and just went with it. Again, the article was nothing more than a joke, and Labor was clearly having fun with it, which is what everybody else should have been doing. Sure, many did do just that, they had fun with it, but it's kind of scary how many took it seriously. But let's leave Fred Labour alone now and move on with the further adventures of Paul in the grave. There was a lot more to the story of Paul's death and the cover-up, though. 
As the rumors spread, the Cluesters found more evidence. I don't know if any of this additional stuff can be traced to just one source, but it became common lore. Some of the Cluesters argue that the cover-up goes even further back than November 1966, pointing to the Revolver album cover, a picture that consists of large drawings of each Beatle with a bit of a collage of photographs among the drawings. Of the four main drawings of each Beatle, only McCartney's drawing was in profile, while the others' faces were facing front. Why was Paul being singled out? The Beatles' longtime friend Klaus Foreman was responsible for the design. I once watched a fan ask Klaus about Paul's face being in profile and the connection to the Paul is dead myth. Klaus stared at the guy for a few seconds and said, Everything you just said is crap. Sorry, I can't do a German accent very well. And the fan said, well, yes, of course it is. It was just a silly rumor. But was there a reason you decided to draw Paul in profile? Klaus replied, you don't understand. I wish not to discuss it. Some of the even more extreme Cluesters go as far back as the 1965 Rubber Soul album, claiming that the Beatles on the cover are photographed looking down at something, as if they were looking at an open grave or perhaps into a casket, and that the song I'm Looking Through You is a hint that Paul is literally being looked through, because he's a ghost and you can see through ghosts. Uh, sure, sure. But no, the consensus is that the alleged car accident happened on or the eve of November 9th, 1966. By the way, let me get back to Fred Labour's mention of a hand behind someone's head representing death. There have been various tellings of that, uh, usually saying that during a funeral at one point the celebrant's hand is extended over the dead person's head. I honestly never really paid enough attention at funerals that I've been to to notice that kind of a detail, and I've been to funerals of various religious denominations. But that seems reasonable enough to use as evidence that the Beatles were trying to tell us that McCartney was dead. In addition to what I mentioned earlier, Cluesters point out how on the cover of the Yellow Submarine album, John Lennon's hand is over Paul McCartney's head. True, but I think it's more of a coincidence than anything else. Really, what Lennon is doing is he's giving McCartney finger bowl horns, much like how people give each other bunny ears when posing for a photograph. Also, given that the cover was drawn by artists in charge of the Yellow Submarine movie, it's unlikely that if the Beatles were trying to keep a secret, they would let a major cartoon studio and hundreds of people on the crew in on the joke. It would have been way too risky. Somebody would have leaked the secret. You can also see a hand over Paul's head in the photographs on page 18 and 24 of the Magical Mystery Tour booklet. And while I'm talking about it, let's look at more of the so-called evidence that Cluster's found in that book that came with the album, or EP if you're in Europe. On page 3, there's that picture of Paul sitting behind the sign that says, I was. Again, Paul telling us that he was, he no longer is. Above him are two small Union Jacks arranged in kind of a crisscross, Supposedly, that layout of flags is some kind of indication of memorializing someone. On page 4, Paul, in his wizard costume, is holding a magic wand. In his right hand. Remember, he's left-handed. I guess you could argue that this picture, which was taken from the Magical Mystery Tour TV special, shows Ringo and Paul playing roles they're not themselves. And by that logic, you can argue that perhaps while Paul himself is a lefty, his wizard character may not be. 
flip over to page 8 and you'll see one of the only pictures not actually taken from the TV special. It appears to be a picture of a dining room with two long tables arranged in a kind of an inverted T shape. Now, this clue is both a little bit over the top and a little creepy at the same time. Rotate that picture 90 degrees clockwise. If you look at the rotated picture from a distance, you may see a skull on the left side of the picture slightly turned to your left. The beret on the person on the lower left of the not-inverted picture becomes an eye socket, as does the back of the chair that that person is sitting on. The shadow on the tablecloth between that person and the lady in the middle with the long hair becomes the, um, the, the nose socket? Is that what you call that hole where the nose goes over on a skull? Now, turn over to page 9, and you'll see a color drawing illustrating the song The Fool on the Hill and you'll see a color drawing illustrating the song The Fool on the Hill, with a cartoon McCartney standing on top of a hill. I guess it's supposed to be a uh, cartoonist interpretation of the Fool on the Hill scene from the Magical Mystery Tour TV special. On the upper right is a huge block of text saying Fool on the Hill. The last L in the word hill suspiciously has a long, lightning-shaped serif on the leg, extending so far that it literally goes through the top of Paul's head perhaps illustrating that the top of his head was shorn off in the car wreck. On page 8, there's a picture of a heavily costumed John Lennon standing next to a sign that appears to say, the best way to go is by M&D Company, a company spelled C-O period. According to the Cloosters, M&D Company was a mortuary. However, remember what I said, the sign appears to say M&D C-O period. But in the actual film, it's clear that the sign says M&D Coach, which was a travel company. Regardless, though, people have pointed out the creepy, tragic coincidence that the company shares its initials with uh, John Lennon's murderer. In the centerfold spread that covers pages 12 and 13, you'll see that Paul is not wearing shoes. Remember, Fred Labore pointed this out to us already. If you look to the right, you'll see a pair of shoes, uh, which I believe I mentioned that Fred talked about as well. What he didn't mention is that there are a couple of little red splotches on those shoes. Uh, blood, perhaps? Some cloosters also find Ringo's bass drum head suspicious. It's an orange drum head with a scribbling in yellow that says, Love, the Beatles. But under the O in love, there's some kind of a symbol. It looks like a strange uppercase N, or perhaps a strangely drawn tilde or as some people see it, the number three with the weird serif extending from the bottom leg, prompting some to believe that the drum head is actually saying, love the three Beatles. Three? Are they trying to tell us that one of the Beatles is missing? Page 15 shows a series of illustrations of the military office scene between Paul McCartney and Victor Spinetti, the same scene where Paul is sitting behind the I was sign. In the illustration, the I was sign isn't there, but the crossed flags are, and the illustrated Paul appears to be playing with a car, supposedly a model of the one he was driving the night of the fatal accident. Speaking of which, let's talk about the Magical Mystery Tour film, TV special, whatever you want to call it. Let's talk about that. If you haven't seen it, well, to be quite honest, you're not missing much. It's pretty boring. Just borrow the DVD or Blu-ray from a friend and just... Just watch the musical numbers. The musical segments are really good. One of those musical numbers, by the way, is not by the Beatles, but by their friends of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. 
Many Beatles fans are familiar with one of the Bonzo dogs, Neil Innes, who 11 years later would portray Ron Nasty in the mockumentary The Ruddles. Bravely bold Sir Robin, brought forth from Camelot. He was not afraid to die, oh, brave Sir Robin. Oh, um, and of course, some may know Neil from his involvement with Monty Python. But um, anyway, the Bonzo Dog Band is seen performing their song Death Cab for Cutie during a striptease scene. And yeah, that's where the band Death Cab for Cutie got its name from the Bonzo Dog song. But huh, the Bonzo Dogs got the name from a newspaper headline, so they stole it too. Anyway, the lyrics to Death Cab for Cutie describe a car accident in which a cab driver and his female passenger don't survive. And just for the record, Paul McCartney was often called the cute beetle. Another moment for the Kloosters happens during the final musical sequence of the film, Your Mother Should Know, a scene that, by the way, contains the only time in which the Beatles ever did a choreographed dance. First of all, all of the Beatles are wearing red roses on their lapels, except for Paul McCartney, who's wearing a black carnation. And uh, there is a picture from this scene in the picture booklet from the album. There's that famous color of mourning. The story is supposedly that they ran out of roses when they were handing out the flowers, and so Paul had to use a black carnation. That's kind of odd, because black carnations are not that common. Roses are. But anyway, during that scene, somebody hands Paul McCartney a bouquet of dead flowers. Well, heck, I talked about the film and the picture book that came with the Magical Mystery Tour album, or EP, depending on where you're from. Might as well talk about the album itself, right? Given that the Paul is Dead rumor originated in the United States, I'm just going to use the U.S. album version of Magical Mystery Tour, starting with the side one opener, the Magical Mystery Tour title track. Throughout the song, there's a sound effect of a vehicle speeding down the road. I guess it's supposed to represent the bus that takes the passengers on a mystery tour. And for those of you who don't know, mystery tours are a real thing. If you're in England and you go on a mystery tour, you board a bus, but you're not told where the actual destination is. I think it's usually just a, a day trip to a shopping district somewhere. But regardless, if you turn the volume up, you can supposedly hear the bus screeching and getting into a wreck, a motor vehicle accident. What seals the deal is that at the end of the song, you're told the magical mystery tour is dying to take you away. Because I already discussed the song The Fool in the Hill, I'll skip over to the next song that allegedly contains clues, George Harrison's Blue Jay Way. If you recall, I already discussed Fred Labour's allegation that George is calling on Paul to resurrect himself, but the less mystical clue, the song's chorus. When it's played backwards, it sounds like George is singing, Paul is bloody, Paul is very bloody. Please don't be Also in the first verse, just played forwards, the background response vocals supposedly sing the word Paul after the first line, died after the second line, 
and Paul is buried after the third line. Or it just could be little tape snippets of the background vocals singing, don't be long, don't be very long or something. But hey, what do I know? I'm not a clooster. I'm just a schnook. Next, there's Your Mother Should Know, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago. The song from the last scene of the film when the Beatles are dancing down a staircase and Paul is handed the bouquet of dead flowers. There's allegedly some backward masking saying, Dead. Why doesn't she know me? I shed the light. Why? Why doesn't she know me? Dead. Why doesn't she know me? I shed the light. Why doesn't she know me? Dead. I shed the light. Why don't they ask my mind? I don't know. Why? Why doesn't she know me more if I shed the light? It seems to me that when people hear messages when playing things backwards, they tend to be really strangely worded messages, very awkward. Stairway to Heaven is a classic example. I'm not going to get into that right now. Who the hell would ever think to come up with those particular words? I, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, off my little mini rant there, let's go to the side one closer. I am the walrus, a song dense with clues. One interesting thing is that the track listing on the Magical Mystery Tour album and EP covers both give I am the walrus a subtitle of No, you're not, said little Nicola. Nicola being a child character in the film. Many note that John Lennon is the lead singer of the song, not to mention the songwriter, ergo implying that he is the walrus. But the No You're Not subtitle makes you realize someone else may be the walrus. Which, I remind you, by the way, Fred Labour claimed is a Greek word meaning corpse. We'll get to more of this in a little bit. Many cloosters notice the phrase Stupid Bloody Tuesday in the lyrics, supposedly when the car crash happened. I mean, if it indeed happened in the hours leading to November 9th, November 9th was a Wednesday, so yeah, Tuesday, I guess. Multiple times the phrase I'm crying appears in the lyrics. Crying perhaps over the death of a friend? Some cloosters connect the phrases I am the Eggman and Goo 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 Jube in the chorus. While John Lennon said that Eggman was a nickname he had for Eric Burden, the Kloosters claim that the Eggman refers to Humpty Dumpty, who was used as a character in James Joyce's book Finnegan's Wake, and that in the book, Humpty Dumpty uttered the phrase Goo 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 Jube before falling off the wall to his death. Well, I personally checked this out, or should I say, um, attempted to check it out. Have you ever tried to read Finnegan's Wake? Go ahead, go try. I dare you. It's a huge mess of gibberish that's so messed up that if the phrase goo 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 jube is indeed in the book, you won't be able to find it. It's really, it's one of the most bizarre things you're ever going to try to read. I couldn't find a mention of Humpty Dumpty either, but then again, it could be because the thing is such a jumbled mess. But I don't know. I don't know. Uh, by the way, a little aside, uh, while I'm talking about Humpty Dumpty, uh, ever notice that there's nothing at all in that nursery rhyme that implies that Humpty Dumpty is supposed to be an egg? But anyway, let's get back to this Paul McCartney being long dead thing. Of course, we already talked about King Lear. So all this stuff put together, along with the fact that some of the melody of I Am the Walrus is actually modeled after the sounds made by a British ambulance siren, provide the listener with a world of hints. 
flip the record over and the second song is Strawberry Fields Forever with its alleged I Buried Paul utterance. But the closing track, All You Need Is Love, has something toward the end that grabbed the uh, Clooster's attention. It sounds like John Lennon sings the phrase, yes, he's dead. Or is it that he's just ad-libbing, yes, it is, as in, yes, love is all you need. The actual album cover itself supposedly has a clue. According to the Clusters, you can see a phone number formed by the stars that spell out the word Beatles. Depending on which version of the story you believe, uh, some say you need to hold the cover up to a mirror and go by the reflection, some say you need to turn the cover upside down, others say it's a combination of the two, the phone number is either 537-143-8231743834-7135-5360195-510-6643, or 546-3663. I think we can rule out 5106643 because, well, assuming that these are American phone numbers, back in 1967, the second digit of an exchange would not have been a one or a zero. Oh, by the way, there's also supposedly a hidden phone number near the end of the song, You Know My Name, Look Up The Number, which you can find on the B-side of the Let It Be single, and uh, You Know My Name, Look Up The Number is perhaps the most unusual track in the Beatles catalog. Arguably even more so than Revolution 9. Anyway, regardless, the story is that whichever these numbers is the number, you're supposed to call it, and you'll get one of several possibilities, depending on who happens to be telling you the story. One claim is that you're supposed to ask for Billy Shears, and you'll get a response saying, you're getting hot, Jack. Another story is that you'll get a message telling you, beware of Abbey Road. Perhaps the most outlandish story I've heard is that somebody dialed the alleged number, I don't know which number it was, and he was told that he would get a ticket mailed to him, and the ticket that arrived was a piece of paper laced with LSD. However, I have um, a bit of a problem with this phone number thing. First of all, we're only given seven digits. For one thing, a phone number in the Beatles' home country contains a four-digit national destination code, followed by a six-digit subscriber number. Why would the Beatles hide an American-style seven-digit phone number? Which leads me to my next point. If it is supposed to be an American number, then what's the area code? Perhaps 213, the Los Angeles area code, because Capitol Records, the distributor of the Beatles in America, is in Hollywood? Do you just dial the number locally and see what happens? Yeah, nobody seems to have an answer for that. And uh, I know I'm going way out of chronology here, but I'm going to proceed to the Beatles' next album, their self-titled double album from November 1968, frequently called the White Album. I'm going to jump straight to the song Glass Onion. Remember how walrus is supposedly a Greek word for corpse, and the subtitle of I Am the Walrus is No You're Not, said Little Nicola? Well, now we know who is. Well, here's another goofy mom. The walrus was Paul. The walrus was Paul. And just the title, Glass Onion. 
The Kloosters argued that glass onion is a slang term for coffin handles that some coffins have that kind of look like glass doorknobs. So if you're looking through a glass onion, as the lyrics say, you're probably inside a casket. But uh, the only problem with that is uh, a glass onion is a type of drinking bottle, also known as an onion bottle, because of its shape. Glass onions were typically used on sailing ships to hold wine or brandy. Uh, Thank you, Wikipedia. There's another alleged clue in Glass Onion that I never knew about until I heard a recording of the WKBW radio special called Paul McCartney is Alive and Well. Maybe. This was from October 31st, 1969. Let's listen to what the host claims. Now we've isolated this particular line on tape cartridge. And you listen for what we're about to tell you to listen for. The next line after the walrus's paw is garbled somewhat. Listen. The walrus's paw. Standing on the cast, Now, the walrus's paw standing on a cast something or other. We think that they may have gone too far here and made a tape edit. And perhaps not quite by accident. Perhaps it's done deliberately, because so far, this entire thing has been done with a great deal of skill and a great deal of style. But now, all of a sudden, there is an edit that is plainly audible to anyone who has an ear for production techniques. Listen again, you'll see what I mean. Standing on a cast iron, and then the music jumps a bit. They've edited, and they've left out a beat. Listen. Now, what does the cast something or other have to do with it? Standing on a cast something or other. Well, when you place a man in a grave, he goes in the casket or coffin. But first, there's a cast aluminum or cast iron vault that goes in to act as a receptacle for the coffin. Standing on a cast iron what? Standing on a cast aluminum, what? Who knows? Mmm, interesting. Very interesting, except, well, there's no edit there. There's no edit. In fact, despite what he claims, there's not even a drop of a beat. You can count a straight one, two, three, four the entire time. What the host fails to realize is that, uh, assuming he still has the inserts from his copy of the White Album, he could just look at the lyrics right away, and he can see that the phrase is cast iron shore. It's just the way that Lennon kind of quickly enunciates it in the song makes it a little bit hard to understand. Well, what is this cast iron shore, though? If I did my research correctly, then the cast iron shore is a small part of the Dingle, which is the neighborhood in Liverpool where Ringo Starr grew up. On the cast iron shore, there was an iron foundry and St. Michael's Church made of cast iron. And on the beach there, lots of ships would dock and leave rust deposits. So all of that iron from the iron foundry, the rust deposits, and the cast iron church gave it the name cast iron shore, especially because the beach would turn kind of a rust color from all the rust deposits laid down. So that explains that. Let's move on. While My Guitar Gently Weeps supposedly contains George crying out for Paul. Wailing, Paul, Paul. I already talked about the gibberish between I'm So Tired and Blackbird. 
And uh, Beatles historian Mark Lewison claims that it's John Lennon saying, Monsieur, 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 how about another one? Um, personally, I think he's wrong, but what do I know? I'm just a schnook. I'll skip over to Don't Pass Me By, a song Ringo Starr had begun writing as early as 1962. The last verse has a very telling line. Sorry that I doubted you, I was so unfair. You were in a car crash, and you lost your hair. You were in a car crash, and you lost your hair. Could it be about Paul referring to the top of his head being shorn off in the wreck? I mean, after all, if you lose the top of your head, you lose your hair. Rather interesting is that the line is toward the end of the song, possibly implying that the song was unfinished for a while, but then Paul's car accident provided Ringo with a final verse, and then he deemed the song complete, four years after he mentioned the song in a BBC interview. I touched on Revolution 9, but I need to elaborate beyond the turn me on dead man thing. Many Kloosters say that if you listen to the entire track backwards, it becomes a reenactment of the car accident with sounds of car crashes and an ambulance siren. Some say you don't even need to play it backwards. Played forwards, you'll hear random pieces of John Lennon and George Harrison speaking, including John saying something about seeing a surgeon. Some Kloosters say you can hear a voice saying, tell the wife, implying that uh, Paul's next of kin would have to be notified. Um, that is despite the fact that McCartney was single at the time. In one part of the, well, you don't want to call it a song because it's not, in one part of the track, let's just say, there's a voice screaming either right or rape. Kloosters claim that if you play it backwards, it becomes, let me out, as if somebody is screaming from inside a car wreck, a flaming car wreck, and they can't get out of the car wreck. History has revealed exactly what that is. The voice belongs to John Lennon, and Revolution 9 itself, despite the bizarreness of the track, is actually the extended fade-out of Revolution 1 with sound effects over it. Oh, right! 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 And Lennon's voice simply comes from the extended jam from the fade-out. He's screaming right. Of course, it wasn't hugely well-known back in 1969, so I guess we can forgive people. Whether or not Revolution 9 actually contains clues, joking or not, one thing you can say for sure about this track, it's bizarre at best, creepy at worst. I also mentioned some of the claims about the pictures of McCartney that are included in the White Album. One that I didn't mention is the picture of Paul on the bottom right corner of the photo collage on the back of the poster, specifically the picture of him immediately to the right of the color picture of Ringo. In said picture of McCartney, there appear to be skeleton arms reaching out to grab him. And going back to that individual 8x10 picture of Paul, you know, the one that doesn't include the very top of his head, there does appear to be scar tissue on his upper lip in that picture. Some Kloosters argue that it's a picture of William Campbell, and that the scar tissue is from the plastic surgery he got to make him permanently look like McCartney. Or, I don't know, maybe it's a scar that uh, the real Paul McCartney had after his moped accident. And I might as well talk about the white elephant, uh, that is the white cover. 
special from WKBW, which I think I failed to mention was based in Buffalo, New York, still is, by the way. They pointed out how the cover, the all-white, represents a color of cleansing after death, whatever the heck that's supposed to mean. Others say it's a color of mourning in some countries. Well, I don't think there's a color that exists that isn't a color of mourning in some countries, so make of that what you will. Of course, the obvious answer to the whole, oh, it means death or mourning, well, think about this. The Beatles' previous album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, very, very colorful album cover with music and experimentation to match. Take the White Album, though, a year later, and the music is a little bit more on the raw side, not quite as psychedelic, not quite as over-the-top, and the cover matches went from all those colors to a simple white. And uh, you know what, friends? It was so much fun jumping out of chronology that I'm going to do it again. Let's go back to 1967, to the Beatles' groundbreaking album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. First of all, let me use my platform to do a little tiny bit of myth-busting for you. The common myth is that the album was released on the 1st of June in England and the 2nd of June in the United States, well, yes, it was released on June 2nd here in America, but the truth is, in England, the album was actually released on May 26, 1967, almost a week ahead of schedule. Why did the Beatles release the album early instead of the scheduled June 1st date? For one thing, it was because Radio London previewed the album on May 12th. And another thing, Kenny Everett played a good portion of the album on his show on the BBC on May 20th. These early airings of the album prompted the powers that be to rush release the album. Getting back to the topic though, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was a treasure trove of goodies for the Cloosters. The album cover provides many clues besides just the hand appearing above Paul's head and the flower arrangement spelling P-A-U-L question mark. The Beatles and the crowd of people behind them are supposedly standing behind an open grave. A pretty huge honking grave if you ask me. On the far right side of the cover, there's a doll wearing a striped shirt that says Welcome the Rolling Stones, and she appears to have blood splatters on her shirt. In her lap is a model car, supposedly of the Aston Martin that Paul took the fatal drive in. According to the late Beatles historian Joel Glazier, the reason for the shout-out to the Rolling Stones, according to the Cloosters, is a thank you for their help with covering up McCartney's death. Some Cloosters claim that the Beatles, well, I should be specific because the Beatles are actually pictured twice on the album cover. Once as the 1964-era mop tops and matching suits, and again as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in the colorful costumes. So I should be specific, the Beatles in their Sgt. Pepper's costumes are posed in such a way that John and Ringo, off to Paul's right, are facing to their left, and George, to Paul's left, is facing to his right. As if they're all propping up Paul, who is dead. I guess Weekend at Bernie's style, I don't know. As for that November 9th date claimed to be when the accident happened, where did that come from? Well, it came from the front cover. And I'm gonna admit, this is just freaking weird. The date is hidden on the bass drum head, which according to some cloosters doubles as a tombstone. Specifically, the date is hidden in the phrase, Lonely Hearts. This is going to be kind of hard to describe in an audio podcast, but what you do is take a pocket-sized mirror or something else small that's very reflective. Uh, I found that the straight edge of a butter knife works pretty well. 
place the edge of the mirror or knife or whatever reflective surface you're using, place it so that the reflective portion itself faces the ceiling and the edge of the mirror or whatever cuts the phrase lonely hearts in half lengthways so that you only see the top of the L, the top of the O, the top of the N, etc. Now look at the combination of the split lonely hearts phrase and its reflection. It now says I-O-N-E-I-X, and then a space, H-E, and then a diamond whose vertical angles point straight up at Paul and straight down into the, well, grave as it were. And then after that diamond, you see D-I-E, or I-1-I-X, he, and then the pointy arrow pointing up at Paul, die. That first I doubles as the Roman numeral for the number one. So take the I-1 together, and you get 11. The I-X is the Roman numeral for the number nine. Eleven nine could be interpreted as November 9th. Only problem, though, again, this works if you're in America, but what if you're in England, where the Beatles are from? Over there, that would be interpreted as September 11th, because they go date, month, year. Problem is, though, that was a Sunday, which would throw off so many of the clues, including the clue on the back of the album that gives us some more specifics. The back cover features printed lyrics of all of the album's songs, perhaps the first time ever that an album cover had lyric transcriptions. At the bottom, George Harrison seems to be pointing to a very specific line in the song She's Leaving Home, that line being, Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock. The Kloosters argue that that is when Paul was officially pronounced dead. Now something I never really thought about, never even knew or anything, until I was doing some research for this appendix. According to TurnMeOnDeadMan.com, and I'll link that in the online bibliography, the way that George is pointing is that the shape of his finger and hand form the letter L. And John Lennon with his hands in his pants, Al Bundy style, I guess, except both hands, that shapes the letter V. And the way that Ringo is holding his hands kind of shapes the letter E. Paul, however, with his back turned, we don't know what his hands are doing. But the assertion on that site is that they were simply trying to kind of subtly form the word love with their hands. Make of that what you will. The album has some other clues in the last four tracks. I briefly touched upon Fred Labour's interpretation of a couple of lines from A Day in the Life, but interestingly, Fred failed to mention that perhaps a bigger giveaway in that same verse, he blew his mind out in a car. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. He blew his mind out in a car. He didn't notice that the light had changed. Perhaps, as I said before, he, um, that is, Paul McCartney, was gawking at a lovely meter maid, perhaps the titular lovely Rita. Just the opening line of Good Morning, Good Morning adds fuel to the fire. Nothing to do to save his life, call his wife in. Nothing to do to save his life. Oh, and once again, the lyrics mention a non-existent spouse. Call his wife in. Again, Paul's not married. As for John's lyrics about the car crash, there is an explanation for that and with uh, solid evidence to back it up. Most of John Lennon's lyrics in A Day in the Life were influenced by newspaper articles. The verse about the guy blowing his mind out in a car 
was about an acquaintance of the Beatles named Tara Brown. I don't know if it's Tara or Tara. I'm just going to say Tara. He was a young socialite who was killed in a car accident on December 18, 1966. His passenger was his girlfriend, who was a model named Suki Poitier, and she survived the high-speed crash. Uh, By high speed, we're talking over 100 miles an hour. She said that Brown didn't see that the traffic light was changing, and his Lotus Elon, I think it's pronounced, collided into a parked truck, and he died from the impact. Um, If I understand the story correctly, when he saw that he was skidding, he positioned the car so that he would take the brunt of the impact so that uh, Suki would have less of the impact, and he essentially saved her life. For the record, the last verse, which isn't part of the uh, Paul is dead hysteria, it talks about how there are 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. That came from another newspaper article lamenting about so many potholes awaiting repair in England. Possibly an explanation for the nothing to do to save his life uh, line, I don't know off the top of my head, but i just like to throw it out there. That's in the song Good Morning, Good Morning, by the way. There is a reference in the lyrics to a British sitcom called Meet the Wife, which actually ended in December 1966. I've never seen the show, but theoretically it's possible that the first line might have been inspired from a plot from the show. And lovely Rita, um, again, some clusters say that it's a reference to a meter maid that Paul was eyeballing, in other words, distracted driving. Well, if Paul indeed was killed in the wee hours and he had no passengers, how does anybody know what he was doing? How often does a meter maid patrol the streets during the overnight hours? Heck, that logic also calls into question the lyrics about the crowd of people, kinda, sorta, but not really recognizing the car crash victim. How big a crowd would there have been in the street during those hours? Some versions say that Rita was actually a passenger in Paul McCartney's car, but what are you going to do? And I should mention the reprise of the title track, the second to the last song in the album. There's one clue that only appears on the mono mix of the album. It's not on the stereo version. Near the end of the song, you can hear Paul McCartney screaming some kind of gibberish or something, just kind of ad-libbing a vocal line. The Cloosters say that Paul, or William Campbell as it were, is actually saying, Paul McCartney is dead, everybody. Really, really dead. Well, here, let's listen to it. You uh, see what you think. Interestingly, Cloosters also point to the album's second song, with a little help from my friends, as containing more clues to the cover-up. Ringo Starr sings lead on that song, and his character is introduced as Billy Shears. And because McCartney's imposter was William Campbell, perhaps Billy Campbell, for some reason the common story is that Billy Shears must be William Campbell, as portrayed by Ringo, of course. The line, I'll try not to sing out of key, is supposedly... Campbell apologizing for his rustiness because, of course, he's new to the band. Now, friends, I'm about to change gears. I'm done talking about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, but I'll be somewhat in chronology from this point on. Next, I'm going to talk about the Beatles' first single of 1968, Lady Madonna. The Cloosters point out a couple of telltale lines in the lyrics. Tuesday afternoon is never-ending. That is, it's never-ending for Paul, who was sent to eternity after crashing his car in the overnight hours. Well, why didn't the Wednesday morning papers come? 
Obviously, it's because they were about to report the McCartney tragedy, but thanks to the cover-up, the newspaper was withdrawn that day before anybody could find out. But it wasn't just the lyrics that the Kloosters latched onto. They also pointed out that McCartney's voice sounds markedly different from before, singing in a completely different style. He used the same style and back in the USSR later in 1968. The Clooster's argument is, well, it's obviously William Campbell singing in his normal voice, and he's not mimicking Paul McCartney at this point. The only problem is, um, Paul McCartney had used that same style voice before, usually comedically, not in an actual Beatles song. I'm pretty sure he used that voice in the film A Hard Day's Night, for example. But then again, maybe that means he had been dead since 1964. Now I'm gonna move over to Let It Be, and yeah, I know that album was released in 1970, but except for one song, the album was recorded in January 1969 and uh, in one case a little bit before that. The pictures on the cover are from January 1969 as well, but there really aren't any clues in the songs as far as I'm aware. But one thing about the album cover that was pretty noticeable is that unlike with most previous Beatles albums, Instead of one group photograph of the Beatles, here are four individual photographs, either intentionally or unintentionally, pointing out the impending breakup. Now, that in and of itself is not a clue to Paul McCartney's supposed death, but the picture of McCartney does have at least one clue. The photographs of John Lennon, Ringo Starr, and George Harrison all have white backgrounds. <laughs> you see where this is going? And again, white is a color of mourning in some countries, so they say. McCartney's picture, however, has a dark red background. Once again, Paul is singled out. Why did they want to draw attention to him? And it's not just the background color that singles him out, but also that the other three Beatles are facing to the left, while Paul is facing pretty much forward. But going back to that dark red background... A deep red, the color of blood. And might I add, the background color on the album cover is black. Definitely a color of mourning. Oh my god, that means that, whoa, the With the Beatles album and its American counterpart, Meet the Beatles, also have black backgrounds on the cover photographs. Does that mean that McCartney has actually been dead since 1963? What, what, um, well... Let's just move on to later in 1969, to another album that provided the Kloosters with all kinds of fun, Abbey Road, the last time the Beatles recorded an album together. A fun fact for you, the last session in which all four Beatles participated together was a mixing session for the song I Want You, She's So Heavy on August 20th, 1969. I mentioned Fred Labour's explanation of the four Beatles on the cover leaving a cemetery and their roles as Undertaker, Gravedigger, Corpse, and, well, I guess a god or deity of some kind. But another theory is that the Beatles are actually going to the cemetery with the same roles, except that Lennon was a priest, pastor, funeral celebrant, whatever. There are certain clues on the front and back covers, though, that the Kloosters came up with that eluded Fred. Perhaps the most famous part of the cover, aside from the crosswalk, is the Volkswagen Beetle with its license plate. There are two rows of characters on the plate. The upper row reads LMW, which many Kloosters like to say stands for Linda McCartney Weeps, Linda of course being Paul's wife. The lower row reads 
281F or possibly 28IF or 28IF, as in McCartney would be 28 years old if he had survived. When people pointed out that he was actually 27 at the time of that picture, the Clooster's comeback was that practitioners of some Eastern religions consider you to be a year old when you're born, essentially counting the nine-month gestation as a year. In this case, it would make McCartney 28 years old. Also, it's noted that the Beatles are walking in step with each other, except for Paul McCartney, so once again he's being singled out for some reason. There's also a police van on the cover, which the McCartney death conspiracy theorists say represents the police who were on the scene of the fatal 1966 car accident, and they were paid off to keep their mouths shut. Now let's flip the album cover over and look at that back picture. You have a brick wall along the actual Abbey Road, with some white on black signage reading Abbey Road NW8, with the uh, W and 8 being covered up by a woman walking by. Above the street designation is similar signage that spells out Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S. There's a crack in the brick wall that goes right through the S in Beatles, which the Clusters interpret as the Beatles trying to tell us that there's some kind of a split within the Beatles, something damaged. To the left of the word Beatles is a series of eight unexplained dots in the wall, which the Clusters claim can be connected to read three meaning that the top row of characters on the wall actually reads three Beatles. In real life, the wall actually contains 13 dots, but Joel Glazer offered the proposition that the photo was intentionally cropped to make the dots look like they formed the number three. Glazer also suggested that if you look at the elbow of the woman, who some say is supposed to represent McCartney's ex-fiancee Jane Asher, if you look at the elbow of the woman passing by, you can see Paul McCartney's face in profile. Well, I hate to say it, but um, that's not really all that far-fetched. It does look like a blurry side view of part of McCartney's face. He'd be facing to the left, with his mouth slightly opened and his nose kind of flattened. Look to the left of that, and immediately after the word Beatles, there are shadows that appear to be forming a skull, rotated about 45 degrees clockwise. Surprise of surprises, most of the front and back cover can be explained pretty easily. The McCartney image in the woman's elbow is just coincidence, really, and if you weren't told about that, you'd likely never even notice. I could buy the crack through the word Beatles theory if the crack in the wall were actually running a little bit closer to the middle of the word Beatles, but it barely grazes the S, so that's not really much of a split. As for the dots? Actually, I think they look more like they're forming a five, actually. So maybe I'm on to something. Maybe there were actually five Beatles all along. But going back to the front cover, McCartney's bare feet have an explanation. Paul McCartney, or William Campbell perhaps, explains that it was a hot day when that photo was taken. I mean, it was August after all. So he kicked off his shoes. Of course, my logic tells me that putting your bare feet on hot asphalt would be much more uncomfortable than keeping your footwear on. Also, alternate shots from that same photo shoot have been published, including of the Beatles walking across the street in the other direction. Some pictures actually have McCartney wearing sandals while he walks across the street. And barring the rather weak explanation of 281F or 28IF explaining Paul supposedly being 28 years old, 
there's one huge thing wrong with the Linda McCartney weeps explanation. There was no such person as Linda McCartney at the time that Paul was supposedly killed. She was Linda Eastman at the time, and the two hadn't even met yet. They wouldn't meet until May of 1967, and uh, there was no cemetery near where the intersection was. That wrought iron fence, it belonged to EMI Studios, now called Abbey Road Studios, which is where the Beatles recorded most of their music. It should be no surprise that some of the songs on the album contain some supposed clues. Referring back to the three Beatles thing on the back cover of Abbey Road, the lyrics come together include the line, one and one and one is three. So I guess that implies that there are three Beatles. Even the first line of the song, Here Come Old Flat Top, supposedly that refers to McCartney's flattened head after the top of it was cut off in the car wreck. The line, The line, he got hair down to his knees. The implication there is that, well, after you're dead, your hair continues to grow, so after three years in the grave, certainly his hair must be down that far. Of course, in reality, hair does not continue to grow after death. It just so happens that the skin dries out, kind of making it sink and forcing existing hair to pop up a little more. It's not that hair continues to grow. But nonetheless, the Kloosters found it reasonable that that's what that meant anyway. The line, he wear no shoe shine, supposedly emphasized a point made on the front cover. McCartney was not wearing shoes, ergo there were no shoes to have a shine. Got to be good looking cause he's so hard to see. The good looking part refers to Paul sometimes being referred to as the cute beetle. And why is he so hard to see? Because he's dead, obviously he's gone, he's not there. Many of the songs on side two seem to have allusions to death. The phrase, all good children go to heaven, appears several times and you never give me your money. Just the title of Golden Slumbers itself could be interpreted as the big sleep or death. The weight referred to in Carry That Weight could be interpreted as the weight of the casket. So now we're bringing pallbearers into the mix. Hmm. P-A-U-L bearers? Hmm. Interestingly, by the way, this is the exact context that the song was used in that 1978 movie, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh, God, that movie is such an atrocity. You know what? Um, I'm going to spoil it for you right now in hopes that you'll never, ever, ever, ever have the desire to watch it. Mean Mr. Mustard kills Billy Shear's girlfriend, Strawberry Fields. Hers is the casket being carried during the song, Carry That Weight. A distraught Billy Shears attempts suicide by jumping off a tall building. But a decoration on top of a church magically becomes Billy Preston in a drum major uniform, and he dances down the street while singing Get Back and shoots lasers out of his finger to bring things back to how they were. He shoots a laser at Billy Shears in mid-fall and puts him back on the building, saving his life. He shoots another laser in the direction of Strawberry Fields' grave, and suddenly, after the smoke clears, we see Strawberry Fields alive and well on top of her grave. For those of you who haven't seen this movie, I swear to God, I am not making this up. One of my few regrets in life is that when I got to um, ask Billy Preston a question at Beetlefest during one of his talks, the question wasn't, why the hell did you agree to do that scene? I'm sure his explanation would have involved the word cocaine. Instead, I asked him about writing You Are So Beautiful with Dennis Wilson. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry, folks. Uh, let me get back to the subject here. 
Uh, just the title of the song, The End, just like with Golden Slumbers. Um, well, it indicates an end, perhaps the end of a life. Earlier on side two, there's the song Sun King. In history, French King Louis XIV had the nickname The Sun King. In part three of The Vicomte de Bragelonne, or Ten Years Later by Alexandre Dumas, Louis XIV, the Sun King, remember, had a twin brother, the Man in the Iron Mask, who came to replace Louis XIV. That could be a clue to McCartney being replaced by a lookalike, no? But believe it or not, the clues do not end with either of the albums that various fans consider to be the Beatles' final album. It continues after the Beatles' breakup. Some of the more intense cloosters say that Paul McCartney's 1970 debut album, simply titled McCartney, continues the clues. For one thing, the album cover has a black background, again, that mourning color. The cover photograph is of a long sheet of white paper with a bowl on it and maraschino cherries all over the paper. The bowl is empty, except for red liquid. Perhaps blood? <laughs> and what's that old adage? Life is just a bowl of cherries. Well, in this picture, the bowl is empty. The cherries have been spilled, indicating that there is no more life. And it still doesn't end there. On John Lennon's 1971 album, Imagine, there's a song called How Do You Sleep, which is a hardly disguised attack on Paul McCartney. Cloosters insist that this line is Lennon confirming their belief that McCartney was... Well, living impaired. Those freaks was right when they said you was dead. So, those are at least most of the clues in the story of how all this broke out. I'm sure there's some that I'm missing, but I think I have a lot of it covered. So, what about the aftermath? Well, for one thing, there was one person who was conspicuously absent during that whole brouhaha in the fall of 1969, Paul McCartney himself. Nobody had heard from him. Life magazine sent photographer Robert Graham and a reporter to seek out McCartney at his farmhouse in Mull of Kintyre in Scotland. They were greeted by an angry Paul McCartney screaming at them and chasing them, throwing a bucket of water at them, the works. McCartney took a few minutes to cool down, then he hopped in his Land Rover, found the two life reporters, apologized, and then invited them in and agreed to an interview. Paul just wanted to get away for a while and have some privacy with his newish family. The cover of the November 7th, 1969 issue of Life had a large black and white picture of Paul and Linda McCartney, Linda's daughter Heather from her previous marriage, and Paul and Linda's new baby, Mary. Paul does look kind of annoyed in the picture. The headline read, The Case of the Missing, in quotation marks, Beetle. Paul is still with us. There were numerous newspaper and magazine articles, radio shows, TV shows, dedicated to the Paul is Dead Brew, haha. One of the hosts of that WKBW show that I mentioned before concluded that the whole plot was a practical joke that was the work of John Lennon. Another show on WPLJ completely mocked the entire rumor, with the host literally laughing at some of the clues and sarcastically analyzing the meanings. Then on page 13, Paul's bloodstained shoes stand before the drums. Well, I've got to be Paul's bloodstained shoes. They're standing before the drums, aren't they? I mean, after all, unless maybe it was Ringo. 
No, then they'd be standing in front of the bass guitar. Famed attorney F. Lee Bailey did a TV special about the Paul McCartney death hoax in the form of a mock trial. And among the witnesses he called were Fred Labore and Russ Gibb, um, whom Bailey repeatedly called Gibbs instead of Gibb, by the way, but Russ was polite enough to not correct him. Several years ago, there was an eight-CD set called Miss Him, Miss Him, Miss Him, and it was compiled by a bunch of Beatles fans, and that contains audio of all known Paul is Dead radio shows over the years, the audio of that F. Lee Bailey show I mentioned, and even audio from a rehearsal of Chris Farley's famous interview with Paul McCartney. Remember when you were with the Beatles and you were supposed to be dead? And uh, there were all these clues, like uh, you'd play some song backward, and it said, Paul is dead, and er everyone thought you were dead. Yeah. That, that was just a hoax, right? Yeah, I wasn't really dead. Several novelty songs satirically mourning the death of Paul McCartney were recorded, and those too can be found on that CD set. If you do go out seeking that collection, do not give money for it. It was made for free distribution. Ask somebody to make a copy for you. But for those of you who don't know, in 1961, the Beatles did some recording sessions backing up a British singer named Tony Sheridan. Uh, at the time, they were referred to as the Beat Brothers. The Beat Brothers happened to be whatever studio musicians happened to be backing up Tony Sheridan at the time. Those sessions have been released numerous times over the decades. One such release was a 1969 Canadian album called Very Together. The album cover alluded to the McCartney death hoax. It pictured a candelabra with four candles, three lit, one recently snuffed out. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned the Ruddles mockumentary. Uh, specifically, it's called The Ruddles. All you need is cash. In that special, Ruddle Stig O'Hara, played by Ricky Fatar, formerly of the Beach Boys, and uh, Stig, by the way, is actually the George Harrison analog in the Ruddles. But Stig was rumored to have been killed in a fire at a waterbed factory and replaced by a wax figure from Madame Tussauds. The Stig is dead clusters pointed to such clues as the fact that Stig, the quiet Ruddle, hadn't said a word publicly since 1962, uh, even though in the mockumentary he's clearly singing lead on Blue Suede Schubert in concert. They also pointed out that on the cover of their Shabby Road album, Stig isn't wearing any trousers. Uh, on the Sergeant Rudder's only Darts Club Band album, he's leaning in the position of a dying Yeti. And if you sing the title song of Sergeant Rudder's only Darts Club Band backwards, you can hear the phrase, Stig has been dead for ages honestly. I previously mentioned that there are people who honestly believe that McCartney had been dead all these years and replaced by an imposter. I'm not going to link any of this bullshit in the online bibliography, but a search in your favorite search engine will uncover these jamokes. One explanation that I saw showed then versus now pictures of McCartney, pointing out how some of his facial features don't line up the way they did back when we knew that McCartney was alive, because as we know, people's faces never change over time. But over time... The Beatles had learned to find humor in the whole story, especially Paul McCartney himself. In 1993, he released an album of his most recent concert tour at the time. The name of the album? Paul is Live. The front cover photo is of Paul once again in the crosswalk on Abbey Road outside of EMI Studios, wearing either the same suit or a very similar suit to what he wore on the 1969 album cover. 
He's walking a sheepdog and making an obvious point of holding the dog's leash in his left hand. And this time he's wearing shoes. Oh, and remember how I said that on the Abbey Road cover, he's walking out of step with the rest of the Beatles? His right foot is forward while the other's left feet are forward. Well, on the cover of Paul is Live, he is intentionally leaning forward on his left foot, which would correct the out-of-step issue on the Abbey Road cover. In the background of the Paul is Live front cover, you don't see a police van there to respond to an accident, but there is a Volkswagen. Yeah, I say Volkswagen, not Volkswagen. Jeez, it's German people. <laughs> There's a Volkswagen Beetle. This time, the license plate reads 51 is. At the time the album was released, Paul McCartney indeed was 51 years old. And here's one little thing that nobody else seems to have pointed out, but I discovered when doing my own research for this episode. The Paul is Live album was released in the United Kingdom on November 8th, 1993, the 24th anniversary of the recording session McCartney allegedly stormed away from before crashing his Aston Martin. Two years later, when McCartney made a guest appearance in the episode of The Simpsons called Lisa the Vegetarian, Paul tells Lisa that if you play his song Maybe I'm Amazed backwards, you'll hear a recipe for, and I quote, a really ripping lentil soup. And sure enough, during the episode's closing credits, you hear the song Maybe I'm Amazed with McCartney's reversed voice appearing in some places in the song. And of course, when you play that backwards, you get the following message. One medium onion chopped, two tablespoons of vegetable oil, one clove of garlic crushed, one cup of carrots chopped, two sticks of celery chopped, half a cup of lentils, one bay leaf, one tablespoon of freshly chopped parsley, salt and fresh ground pepper to taste, and two and a quarter cups of vegetable stock or water. So yeah, there's that lentil soup recipe, just as he promised. At the very end of the recipe recitation, McCartney adds, oh, and by the way, I'm alive. And actually, there are a couple of other clues I should bring up. I don't know if this was pointed out back in 1969 during this whole McCartney death hoax craze, but there is a clue in the Strawberry Fields Forever promotional film, or as it would have been called had it been made, say, in 1981 or later, a music video. You see, the, the Beatles and other performers got into the habit of filming themselves performing or lip-syncing to their songs, and those films would be sent out to various TV shows, so that way, instead of having to travel to perform on the shows, Ed Sullivan or whoever else would be hosting whatever show would just show the film instead. Some observant fans noticed that every time the phrase, nothing is real, is sung, the camera cuts to Paul McCartney, indicating perhaps that... Uh, the person you are seeing is not real. Were they trying to tell us it was William Campbell? The other clue I wanted to mention was, well, one that I personally noticed, but didn't see or hear anybody else mention. In the 1995 documentary, The Beatles Anthology, during the portion where the Beatles talk about how they gave up touring in 1966, there's a montage set to the song For No One. On the line, but now he's gone, we suddenly see just Paul McCartney on the screen, as if that montage were edited specifically to put him on the screen just for that line. I'm open to believe that it was either a coincidence or a sly little joke to refer to the Paul is Dead rumor. 
By the way, did I mention before that that was another kind of clue to McCartney's demise that suddenly the Beatles stopped touring in 1966 and never went on the road again? Ooh, maybe they were afraid of taking William Campbell on tour, an experienced professional musician that he is. But what do I think? Well, when I did my speech about this in my sophomore year English class, my teacher told me she remembered hearing about the death hoax when she was a little kid. She asked me what I thought of it. I told Mrs. Tarrant that I was convinced that the Beatles planted the clues intentionally just to screw with the fans, have some fun, and maybe get some publicity, and she agreed with me. However, as the years went by, I've changed my mind. I honestly believe it's nothing but a big coincidence, and that you can find whatever story you want in anything by cherry-picking certain things and putting your own twist on the narrative. Case in point, I once used similar logic to come up with proof that despite Brian Wilson's years of insisting otherwise, the legendary Smile album would eventually be finished and released. For example, over a period of several years, the Beach Boys did release a small handful of tracks recorded during the Smile sessions. Perhaps they were just testing the waters to see if maybe there would be demand for Smile. Also, the back cover of the Smiley Smile album had an adage claiming to be Indian wisdom. The smile that you send out returns to you. Ooh, the smile is returning to us. That means the Smile album is coming. And the album wasn't actually called Smiley Smile, but Smile, E, Smile. That is, uh, E, spelled Y, being Spanish for and. Smile and Smile. Two smiles. Indicating that when Smile does come out, it'll be a two-record set. Well, sure enough, when Brian Wilson finished Smile in 2004, when it was released on vinyl, it took up two records. Did I call that or what? But anyway, going back on topic, whatever happened to the folks who brought us the Paul is Dead rumors? Fred Labour is a Grammy-winning Western musician who goes by the stage name Too Slim, and he performs in a musical comedy group called Riders in the Sky, and I will link their website in the online bibliography. Russ Gibbs sadly died at age 87 this past April. For years, he was heavily involved in music promotion, and he was one of the founders of the Grand Ballroom in Detroit. Nobody really knows whatever happened to the caller who tipped him off about Paul's apparent death, a caller who identified himself only as Tom. He may or may not have been an Eastern Michigan University student named Tom Zarsky. As for me, again, I do not believe Paul McCartney died and was replaced, and I also don't believe that the clues were planted there intentionally. John Lennon himself said that if Paul were dead, the Beatles would have just come right out and said so. And darned if I could remember who it was, but I heard an interview with a concert promoter who met with Paul in Sweden in 1963 and didn't see him again until 1968, after Paul allegedly died. He said that when they met again, Paul had brought up things that they discussed the last time they saw each other, in 1963, and there's no way it could have been anybody else but the real Paul that he was talking to. And folks, let's just be realistic here. We're talking about the Beatles. They were way too busy to have fabricated such a huge story and put all the effort into planting these weird clues in their music and their pictures. For one thing, their manager, Brian Epstein, or Epstein, I don't think there's an agreement as to how it's supposed to be pronounced. Uh, The story I heard is that he preferred Epstein, but when people called him Epstein, he didn't want to correct them because he was just happy he was able to get people's attention. Anyway, um, Epstein would never have allowed it. And yeah, he died in August 1967, but that brings me to another point. Once Brian Epstein died, the Beatles' everyday affairs were a hot mess. 
they wouldn't have had the time or the patience to play a years-long practical joke on their fans. The Beatles had to deal with the lack of a manager, and in fact, many Beatles insiders strongly believe that the death of Brian Epstein is what started the Beatles down the path toward a breakup. In addition to dealing with a lack of management, the Beatles had just started a business, the whole Apple Corporation thing, their tax shelter. They were busy producing and writing songs for themselves and other artists. John Lennon was busy with Yoko Ono for a good deal of the time and doing his own music in addition to Beatles music. George Harrison was also busy working on outside musical projects besides the Beatles, and Ringo Starr was launching an acting career. The Beatles did not have time for such an elaborate prank. Interestingly, one article I read from 1969, I don't remember what publication might have been Rolling Stone, the author was talking about just how ridiculous the whole concept of Paul dying and being replaced was. But the author added something along the lines of, well, given the musical output of the Beatles since then, if this isn't really McCartney, that's okay. We like the newer one better anyway. <laughs> Nonetheless, the Paul McCartney death hoax is a fascinating part of the Beatles story. Multiple books have been written about it. TV and radio programs happen because of it. And now at least one podcast episode. You're welcome. And uh, all right, I'm going to admit part of the reason I did this episode is because for years I had been asking the guys at the Fab Four Free For All podcast to do a Paul's Dead episode. And I kept hearing back, yeah, we're going to be working on it this weekend. Well, sorry, but I ran out of patience. Ha ha ha. No, actually, I, lo I love that podcast so much. I'll link it in the online bibliography. But anyway, if you've made it this far, I thank you for listening. In fact, even if you didn't make it this far, I still thank you. I've wanted to do some kind of presentation about the Paul is Dead rumor for a long time, in which I could just get out everything that I knew, everything that I theorized, everything that I researched, and this podcast gave me the perfect opportunity to do it. I didn't have to give myself a time limit, I could interject my own feelings, and of course, I got to talk about the Beatles at great length. As usual, I thank my ever-supportive wife Lisa for putting up with these obsessions of mine. And I thank William Campbell, wherever he is. And Paul McCartney, if you're listening to this, tell you what, bud. Add the song Mull of Kintyre permanently to your set list in the United States. If I hear you perform it the next time I'm at uh, one of your United States shows, I'll consider going veggie for you. At the very end of the recipe recitation, Recitation? I actually spelled it recitation here. No, it's recitation there. Red line disappears. <laughs>